Well, if you were in or around the Sioux Falls area yesterday morning, uh, you were uh, in for quite a storm. Uh, we were down on the south uh, southwest side of town and caught the tail end of it, according to radar. If you were much further north or just north of Sioux Falls, it looked like it was even worse. Um, unfortunately, it provided uh, a perfect illustration uh, for something that we're going to be talking about today. Um, you can see this is a tree that uh, didn't weather the storm so well uh, in, in our front yard, unfortunately. We lost about 40% of that tree, and who knows, maybe we'll lose the rest of it. But as I was dealing with that, and as I was uh, going around and trying to find out what we're going to do and how we're going to kind of patch it up the best that we could and, and everything, I thought, you know, if there had been three or four of those trees in close proximity to each other, I bet none of them would have lost a limb. But it was the one that was standing on its own. It was the one that, that was out there, isolated, on its own, that uh, took the brunt and, and the limb came off. And, and then as the day progressed, I thought, you know, that's true. We're talking about relationships today, and we truly were made for relationships. We are better together. And when we stay together in groups, we are stronger, we are safer, we are steadier. But as the day progressed, and my wife put it on her Facebook, I put it on my Facebook and threw it out there if there was anybody with a chainsaw in a truck, since I don't have either one of those. And, and uh, interestingly enough, people from each of the churches that we have served in said, you know, from Casper, from West Virginia, from Indiana. Well, I'd be there if I could help. I, you know, I, I would, the one even did the miles. It's 1,068 miles. We could be there Tuesday. I'm like, come on down. But it kind of illustrated the other half of that, that, that the relational connections that we've made over the years uh, are still there. And there are people right here in this church, multiple people that have offered to come and help. And I thought, you know, we're better. We're better together. We were made for relationships. In fact, if, if you look at Genesis 2.18, God says that it is not good for the man to be alone. This was before he, he made Eve. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is the same God that six days in a row made something and said it is good, made something, said it is good, made something, said it is good. He looked at man on his own by himself, said, that's not good. It's the first thing in all of creation that was not good was for man to be alone. So he created a helper suitable for him. And we are made for relationships. We were made for relationships with God, and we were made for relationships with each other. This is an unescapable fact of creation. We are made in the image of the triune God. God himself is a divine relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in a community of perfect divine love. God is a relationship. We were made in the image of a relational God for relationship with God and with each other. And so as we continue the series, Made to Thrive, and we're going to talk about thriving relationally today, we're coming down the home stretch. We've got this week and next week, and then we'll be launching a new series to carry us through the end of summer. But the idea is simple. The, the idea is that we were made to thrive, not just to survive. The creation that we're talking about through the first six days, it was perfect. Prior to the fall, it was perfect. God, Adam, and Eve lived in unbroken communion. The world was perfect. There was no death. There was no decay. Everything was perfect. We were made and intended to thrive. And we've talked about this idea that we thrive 
when we respond in faith and obedience to the conviction of the Holy Spirit brought by the Word of God. We thrive. We thrive spiritually. We thrive mentally. We thrive physically. We thrive relationally and financially when we respond in faith and obedience to God's Spirit revealed through His Word. And last week I said something uh, in the context of the physical thriving that we wanted to be focused on, but it, it certainly bears truth in each of these areas of our lives. And the, it's the idea that you can choose to make your wellness a priority now, or you can be forced to make your wellness a priority later. You can choose to make your spiritual, mental, physical, relational, and financial wellness a priority now, or you can be forced to make it a priority later. And just to catch you up, I know it's summer and people are going in a hundred different directions and you're here one week and you're gone a week and then you're back for a week or two and then you're gone for a week. So I'm going to just review the series so far with the big ideas. You can always go out to our podcast and catch up. Uh, go to the website, linwoodchurch.org, hit the media tab, and they're all right there as well as our previous series. But week one, we started with thriving spiritually, and the order really matters, that, that our relationship with God and, and the ability to thrive spiritually is of first importance. If that is broken, nothing else will be solid. That is the foundation for thriving, I believe, and Scripture would declare. And the idea here is that Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord of all, that, that we don't get to compartmentalize our spiritual life from the rest of life. It's all spiritual. Life is spiritual. And we thrive spiritually when Jesus is on the throne, when he is in fact Lord of all. Because if he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. Week two, we talked about thriving mentally. We talked about the mind, the will, and the emotions, and and really how we make decisions and how we gain input either from the flesh and the sin nature and the world around it, or from the Spirit of God, which is within our spirit, and, and our behavior and our beliefs flow from that. And the idea was the more we think what we should think, the more often we'll do what we should do. The more time we spend thinking, directing our thoughts, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, the more we do that and we think what we should think, we think what Scripture would have us to think, we focus on what is pure and excellent, righteous, true, perfect, lovable, admirable, and noble, we fix our minds on these things, then we do these things. But if we focus on the things of the world and we focus on the appetites of the flesh, then we're going to do those things. Last week we looked at how thriving spiritually, thriving physically, I'm sorry, thriving physically is a spiritual issue. That we are stewards of this body that God has given us. That it doesn't belong to us. That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and everyone in it. And you were bought with a price if you are in Christ. And so we must steward our bodies well. We must be stewards. And that there is far more freedom. Far more freedom inside God's will than we will ever find outside God's will. Every time we leave God's will, every time we leave what Scripture declares to be good and right for us, we find bondage, we find slavery to the things of this world rather than the things of God. There is far more freedom inside the will of God than there is outside the will of God. 
I can't make this up. Last week I preached on freedom. Or the, one of the central verses was on freedom. This week one of the central verses on freedom. And I've been at camp the last two weeks where the theme was freedom. And we experienced freedom. And that was just one of these divine coincidences that, that took place. But I want to let you know that, that good things are happening on the other side of the state during these camps. We learned that 37 children accepted Christ for the first time and many dozens more rededicated or refocused their lives on Christ at the elementary camp. And I don't know that there was even a count for the, the middle school camp. I wish you could have seen what took place on Wednesday night as the spirit was just unleashed in that tabernacle and as students were going around and laying hands on each other and praying for each other and dozens of hands went up to accept Christ for the first time. Three students in in my cabin of 10 accepted Christ for the first time and the spirit just had free reign. there There were groups of kids huddled together crying and praying, praying out loud for each other. It was powerful. Good things are happening. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for sending kids to camp. Thank you for, for supporting camp financially. Uh, it's a big deal. And there's one camp left. There's one camp left. Our senior high camp uh, leaves tomorrow morning from Linwood, and uh, we, they need your prayers as well. They need your prayers as well. So uh, today we are talking about thriving relationally, and I want to start by revisiting something that I shared briefly in the Mother's Day message when we were talking about love relationships. Maybe you were here that day, and uh, we talked about the, the correct order or the proper order of these relationships. And the idea here is that if you put something that needs to be in second or third in first, it all falls apart. It's foundational, kind of like thriving spiritually is foundational. And so you won't be surprised to see that in the order of our relationships, the relationship with God has to be first and foremost. It cannot have exception or equivalent. God and God alone is to be the object of our first love, the primary, not first among equals, but first and alone at the top. Because when God and our relationship with God, our vertical relationship with God is right, and, and we are living in a love relationship with Him, then we begin to see how we were made in His image. We begin to have a, self, a, a self-love that is healthy, that is humble, that seeks to serve out of gratitude. So we have a, a right relationship with God first and foremost because you cannot give to others what you do not have yourself. And when you have a genuine love for God, you can have a genuine love for yourself and a genuine love for others. This is the way it was intended, that we would have that relationship with God first and foremost. Second, if you're married, is your spouse. That of all the earthly relationships, we say in marriage ceremonies, forsaking all others to to cling to each other, to leave and cleave, to leave that family of origin and cleave together, and that the two shall become one. And I love doing marriages and doing premarital counseling because we get to talk about this idea that, that of our earthly relationships, there is none that parallels. There is none that even comes close to that relationship of husband and wife. And the idea is that we would establish this relationship prior to having children, that we would establish this relationship with our spouse and become one together and become better disciples together. My, my Christian counselor tells me all the time that, 
that were kind of like two sharp rocks thrown into a rock hopper, and you start spinning that thing around, and they bang into each other for a while, and the rough edges get worn off eventually, and, and something smooth comes out as a result of working together, and, and oftentimes I will tell a marriage that is struggling, I'll ask them how their personal relationship with God is, because remember that has to be first, and you come to find out that the marriage has become the focus, not God. And as a result, there's all kinds of conflict and tension. And I'll say, why don't you, sir, focus on getting closer to God and becoming a better disciple of God? And you, ma'am, focus on getting closer to God. Because no matter where you are, how far apart you might be right now, if you're both moving towards God, you're getting closer together at the same time. And we put that relationship first, the spouse relationship second. Then is our children, our immediate family, Parent relationships, child relationships. If you put that first, and how many marriages do I see that are in trouble because the focus of both mom and dad has become entirely on the children and there's no focus on each other. They don't go on dates anymore. They don't build and invest in their relationship anymore. That the intention would be that that we have our relationship with God, then our relationship with our spouse, then children are third. And we teach them to love God authentically primarily, daily. We teach them to pray. We nurture them. We provide for them. We protect them. We instruct them. We do all of these things for them and help them. And children have that relationship with their parents. And that doesn't go away in our immediate family. Then we move out in concentric circles into our our extended family, our close friends, the family of God. Should not be more important than our own immediate family or more important then our relationship with our spouse or with God. You see, the order is important. The order matters. How many pastors have put their church family or the world out there in front of their immediate family or their spouse or even their own relationship with God to their own detriment? We have to keep these things in the right order. So if we're going to talk about thriving relationally, this slide is a great first step. And then we, we thrive relationally as we serve the world out there, as we serve mankind, as we serve our neighbor out there. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Your closest neighbor is your spouse. Your next closest neighbor is your kids or your immediate family. Your next closest neighbor is extended family, church family, close friends, and your farthest neighbors are the world out there, the people that you don't yet know as brothers and sisters in Christ. All of them matter. All of them are important. But if the order gets mixed up, things get wonky really, really fast. So now I want to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. There's literally dozens of New Testament passages that we could be focusing on today as we consider thriving relationally. But I have found that Ephesians chapter 4 is a goldmine of relational wisdom. In just a few short verses, we see an absolute goldmine of relational wisdom. So if you turn in the blue hardcover Bibles in the seats in front of you to page 1821, I'll read verse 1. We're going to focus on verse 2 and 3, though. So I'll read the whole passage, and then we will focus on several key phrases that are found in verses 2 and 3. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. To live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. The calling to thrive spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. 
relationally and financially. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I could go on. The whole chapter is a relational gold mine. I want to focus on these three verses, and I want to focus on, on five or six phrases that we find in these verses. Admonitions from Paul as he speaks to the Ephesian church, which really we have reason to believe that the, the letter to the church at Ephesus was more widely circulated than all the other New Testament letters. There's more copies of it that have turned up in more places. And we know that the church in Ephesus was a thriving church, that Timothy was there, that Paul was there for several years, that there was a good leadership base, that it was a sending church. It was a church that planted other churches in the region. And we see that the church at Colossae was linked closely to the church at Ephesus. And you read Colossians and Ephesians back to back, you'll see a lot of overlap, that Paul was wanting to make sure that this whole region was informed and instructed. And these letters were circulated and read aloud, and people took them as, as oxygen essentially, for how to live the Christian life. And so when he says, be completely humble, that's the first thing we see in verse 2. Be completely humble. Humility means thinking of or putting others first. Sometimes there's confusion around this. People like Rick Warren and C.S. Lewis have tried to clarify. Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself. It's not, it's not self-abasement. Humility is thinking of yourself less You can be extremely prideful and extremely self-focused and think less of yourself and run yourself down all the time and not do any good for anybody else. But true humility is putting others first. True humility is thinking of yourself less often and thinking of others more often. Putting them first. Because pride and selfishness destroy relationships. If you think about the most prideful, selfish person that you can think of, you probably don't have a great relationship with them, do you? And they probably don't have very many great relationships at all in their life because pride and selfishness destroy relationships. So we're to be completely humble, but we're also to be completely gentle. Completely gentle. And I've given this definition for gentleness before. Gentleness is, is really strength under control. It's not weakness. It's not that you don't have strength. It's that you've harnessed that strength, that the strength is under control, that there's self-control. And that's one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, that we would have a sound mind, that we would, we would guard our tongue, guard our words, that we would be gentle with our words, gentle in our actions, gentle in the way that we treat one another. Because gentleness builds trust. Gentleness invites people in. Gentleness creates a feeling of safety. And so when there's gentleness on both sides of a relationship, people are moving towards each other. But when there's harshness on either side of a relationship, people move away from harshness. They move away from the absence of gentleness. But he doesn't stop there. He says, be patient. Be patient. Sometimes I wish that wasn't in there. (laughs) Anybody else? Be patient. Be willing to wait with each other. Be willing to wait relationally. Be willing to forgive in our relationships. You know, Philippians 1.6 says that Paul is confident that he who began a good work in you and you and you and you and you and you 
will be faithful to bring it to completion. Being patient applies that verse not only to yourself, but to the person next to you, to your spouse, to your children, to your crazy uncle, to whoever it is that is requiring patience of you right now. I'm thankful that Heather has been patient with me because there were times, I'm sure, in our marriage where it's like, if this is as good as it gets, I don't know how much longer I can handle this. But she was patient. That he who began a good work in me was faithful and would bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And there have been times with our kids where I've had to be patient and realize that this snapshot, this frame in the movie is not the whole movie. It doesn't end this way. They're in the process from one place to another place. And every relationship you have is with a fallen human being. And if they're redeemed, and if they're in Christ, then they are moving from that fallen state, becoming more and more like Christ. And if they're not moving as fast as you want them to, then maybe you can help them. Maybe you can pray for them. Maybe you can instruct them. Maybe you could disciple them. And if you're not moving as fast as you would like to be moving, then you, maybe you could find somebody that was a little further down the road and link arms with them and learn from them and help have them disciple you. This is the way that the Christian community was designed to work, that those who are farther down the road can bring those along, that we can be patient with one another, that we can bear with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love is the next phrase there. And bearing uh, comes from the word that is translated as forbearance. Forbearance, it means to bear a burden. It means literally to suffer. That we would be willing to suffer alongside, that we would be willing to come alongside somebody who's struggling and help them and empathize with them and take on some of their emotional burden or their financial burden or their physical burden upon ourselves and bear with them in love because we remember we're both imperfect we, we're going to fail often we have to be willing to suffer with people sometimes obviously you have to have boundaries you have to have healthy boundaries this can easily lead into codependence or, or an unhealthy relationship but in the body of Christ we want to bear with one another in love Keeping the unity of the Spirit. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. I like that the word keep is there. Some translations translate the word maintain. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God doesn't tell us to go out and create the unity of the Spirit. He tells us to maintain it. It's already there. If the Spirit of God is in you and the Spirit of God is in me, then that creates a great foundation for unity. And when we showed the, the three circles and we showed the Spirit, our Spirit, God's Spirit intersects that. And so if God's Spirit has intersected my Spirit and your Spirit and your Spirit and your Spirit, we can maintain the unity that we have in the Spirit. Because we all share the same Spirit of God in our lives. This is, this is how the Christian community was designed by God to work. We don't create it, we maintain it. We say, unity is more important to me than being right. Unity is more important to me than having my own way. Unity is more important to me than putting you in your place. Yes, it has its time. Yes, we overuse that a lot in the church. We say it's more important for me to be right than for us to be one. 
And we start a new church, or we start a new denomination, or we start a new whatever. We say, it's more important for me to be right and have my way than it is for us to be one, and there's a faction. And then those people go over here, and they get to button heads. And this one says, well, it's more important to me to be right than for us to be one, so I'm going to go this way. And we fail to thrive relationally. Or gossip, or lying, or cheating, or quarreling, or all the other don't-dos in the New Testament make their way in. And we give up the unity of the Spirit by sharing something that we have no right to share. By trying to oppress somebody else, by wanting to take what they have or, or exploit what they have. So we are to keep, we make every effort. It doesn't say just, you know, when you have some extra time. Carve out an hour on Saturday afternoon to keep the unity of the Spirit. Oh, it says make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Can you imagine a church like this? Can you imagine, can you imagine a Christian community, a, a group of people that did everything just in these two verses? What a joy it would be to live in that. And he closes it all up, kind of puts a bow on it with the bond of peace. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That we are bound together with the peace of Christ. In Colossians, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Don't you love that word picture? Because when I think of peace, I don't think of authority. I don't think of ruling. I don't think, I think of heavy-handedness or, or some of those other things when I think of ruling. But we're to let the peace of Christ The peace of Christ stretched out on a cross. That's what rules in our hearts. That's what is binding us together is that peace of Christ. That we would be bound together in that. Now it's interesting that Paul's writing this letter at a transition point in the history of the world and in the history of the people of God. It's the transition point that came with Christ when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for all the sins of the world and did away with the law. And Paul writes extensively about this in Romans and Galatians, that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace, that Christ's paying the penalty for our sins initiated the law of love or the law of grace. And so in the Old Testament, there were laws to make sure that we didn't do what we were supposed to do. Think about the Ten Commandments. Six of the Ten Commandments have to do with how we treat each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill each other. Things will go better in your community if you're not doing that. If you're not killing each other, go figure. And that's why I can say without any question in my mind that the first blessing of obedience is obedience itself. Like if people do what the Old Testament said to do, they thrived relationally. Well, now in the New Testament, it's no longer law. It's no longer that we are under the law and we'll be punished by God if we don't do these things. Now we are under one commandment. One commandment. Jesus gave it in John 13. Paul reiterates it several times. One of the places that he does that is in Galatians chapter 5. If you turn there next, it's just a few pages back on page 1815. And I want to read verses 13 through 15 to you. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. 
the entire law, the entire Old Testament, all the commands, all the requirements, the entire law is summed up in one single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, a new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. And then he clarified it. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. As I have always had your best interests in mind, as I have willingly laid down my life for you, so you should love one another. You see, the sinful nature is anti-relational. Everything that the sinful nature wants will eventually cause your relationships to break down because sin always isolates us. Or it isolates us with other sinners doing the same sin, which isn't much better. But when we choose to serve one another in love, when we choose to be humble and gentle and patient, to bear with each other, and to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we're not following our sinful nature. And we're not doing it because the law says so. We're doing it out of reverence for Christ. We're doing it out of a reborn heart. We're doing it out of our love for Him. Not because of the law, but because of our love for Jesus Christ. Our bottom line today is that we thrive relationally when we serve one another in love. When we serve one another in love by being humble. When we serve one another in love by being gentle and being patient. By bearing with and staying one and maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We thrive relationally when we serve each other in love, when we serve God in love, when we serve our spouse in love, when we serve our children and our immediate family in love, when we serve our extended family, church family, close relationships in love, and when we serve the world around us in love. We thrive relationally. Not an I will if you will type of serving, you know. Not an I will if you will type of marriage. Not an I will if you will relationship with God, which a lot of Christians in the church today have. It's an I will if you will. And you can tell because when they're telling their story about why they left the church or why they left the faith, it's because God didn't come through. They had an I will if you will relationship with Him. Not an I will because you did. See, that's okay in our relationship with God. That can motivate our obedience to God because of what He has done for us is unparalleled in all the world. What God did for us in sending Christ to live the perfect sinless life and die a horrifying death on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that can be the motive for our service to God. That can be the motive and the genesis for our love for God. When we see that, it changes us. But every other relationship in our life can't be an I will if you will or I will if you did because... Because that's transactional. And we're called to serve one another in love, not in exchange for good deeds. We serve one another in love. And the best marriages are not two people saying, well, I'll love you and I'll be faithful to you and I'll do this and this and this for you as long as you do it for me. Because then the focus is not the love. The focus is not the relationship. The focus is on whether or not the things are getting done. And the same thing with immediate families and with the world around us and with churches and everything else. The best relationships are relationships where both people say, I will whether you do or not. 
I will love you. I will serve you. I will sacrifice myself for you, whether you do or not. And when both people do that, that is a rock-solid relationship. That's a relationship that thrives. I like to say 50-50 relationships fail half the time. That's why half the marriages in America end in divorce, because it's a 50-50 relationship. I will if you will. But the best relationships are 100-100 relationships. The best relationships are relationships that are transformational, where God's love is in our heart, transforming us. Where we say, I will whether you do or not. I will whether I feel like it or not. And if all else fails, I will because of what Christ did. I will because I love Jesus, because his love is alive in my heart. So whether I feel like it or not, whether I want to or not, I'm going to do it because he has told me to do it, to serve one another in love. And so the best marriages, the best friendships, the best partnerships in business are two people serving one another in love because we thrive relationally when we serve each other in love. And the best families and the best churches and the best communities are whole groups of people committed to serving one another in love. Not 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, but everyone coming in and saying, what is my part to play? What spiritual gift have I received and how can I use that to serve the body? I was teaching a membership class last week. I'm going to be teaching one this afternoon. It's exciting. We've got like 10 or 12 people that are interested in becoming members of Linwood. And we talk about the body of Christ in there. And I said, one of the problems with the church in America today is we got a whole lot of appendixes. I know it's supposed to be appendices, but your appendix, it's that thing that's right here. It's that little extra gut that you don't really need, and it doesn't serve any purpose. And there's a lot of appendixes in churches where they don't really serve. They don't really contribute anything. They can be taken out, and you would never notice. However, that's also what happens to blow up often and almost kill you, is the appendix. Don't be an appendix. Be a hand. Be a foot. Be a heart. Be a brain. Be something. Contribute what you have. They're not all equal. They don't have to be equal. They all have to be connected. They all have to be engaged. They all have to be committed to serving the whole body in love. So I don't know how this applies to you specifically. Maybe you're knocking the cover off the ball and all your relationships are thriving and I hope that's the case. And if it is, I would imagine that you have made a choice to serve people in love. But if you're not thriving relationally, then maybe one of these six things that we looked at from Ephesians 4 would apply to you. You could be a little more humble. You could be a little more patient. You could be more gentle in the way that you approach things. You could bear with. Bear up courageously under suffering with people. You could seek unity rather than having your own way or let that peace of Christ rule in your heart. Maybe it's more than one or two of those. But whatever God is saying to you right now, my prayer is always that you will respond in faith and obedience to what God has revealed to you from his word because that's when things change. That's when things change in your life and that's when things start to change in our church, in our community, in our world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the freedom that we have in Christ. We are thankful that you have called us to be free, that you have paid the price of our freedom. And so we pray now, God, that we would respond 
to that love. We would respond to that grace with a commitment to serve one another in love. Whether we need to serve you more or serve our spouse more, serve our children, our family members, or our church in love. God, help us to be a people who are focused on serving one another in love. Inhabit our praises now as we respond in faith to you. The altars are open, Lord. I pray that there is nothing that would inhibit anyone from coming forward to pray at an altar. May your spirit move in power in these next few moments. In Jesus' name. Thank you.